I mean, the, the one sentence thing is that food is important and people should pay attention to it. It's not just something you eat. The way it's grown and, the, and what we eat determines so much about the world that it's worth taking much more seriously than we do. I'm Anna LaPay, and this is Real Food Reads, the podcast from Real Food Media, where we talk to authors of some of the most interesting books today on the intersection of food, politics, and culture. For this episode, I was excited to talk to Mark Bittman, the author of 30 books or so, as he told me he's kind of lost track at this point. In this episode, we talk about his new book, Animal Vegetable Junk. You may know Mark from his minimalist column in the New York Times or from his many cookbooks. Our Family's How to Cook Everything Vegetarian by Mark is among the most used cookbooks in our kitchen. Or you may, like me, have been following his Bitman Project Substack for go-to pandemic cooking inspiration. In Animal Vegetable Junk, Mark goes deep, big into the history of our species, relationship to food, where we are today, and where we're headed. In our conversation, we got to talk about his love-hate relationship with the term agroecology, how talking about race and racism is central to the story of food, and how this book project brought him back, in a way, to his 60s radical roots. Thanks so much for joining us, Mark. I am excited to talk about your new book. Is this your 30th? I, you know, it's very hard to count, but <laughs> people say that. I say it's more than 20. Right, right. You, you know. Well, you know, you've been writing books for a long time when you start losing count. Well, this new book, Animal Vegetable Junk, it is, uh, I would say, you know, your most sweeping, at least sweeping outside of the recipe category, because of course, your How to Cook Everything series are quite sweeping when it comes to food. Uh, but in our short time together, of course, we won't have time to to touch on everything you you get into in this book. But I, I love to hear origin stories of books. And I thought if you could just start there, what inspired you to take on this, again, this sweeping book? Uh, and, you know, what, what was that spark? And why did you cho- choose to, to go back so far in the story of humans and our relationship to food? I mean, I'll share a little history because... Really, the story starts in 1969 or 1970. I was in New York in 1969. I was a junior in college. And um, I was introduced to radical politics through the anti-war movement, like so many other people, but also through the women's movement, um, thanks to some very strong women I knew. And, And then we were out doing support the Black Panther marches, and we were out doing union support. And it just sort of became clear that everything was interrelated, which was an old SDS slogan and something that many old leftists knew. And food wasn't really in that picture. Although the Black Panthers, right, and you write about this in the book, like the Black Panthers were the leading edge of bringing food into that picture in a lot of ways with their pushing free breakfast and lunch programs. 100% right. And um, I just wasn't smart enough to see it. And food wasn't in the picture in my mind. Um, But the environment was, I mean, I sort of saw that. And then the years went by and Diet for a Small Planet came out. You know about that. Um, That was important. And, And then I worked, I did community organizing. And when I started to write, no one was interested in anything that I wrote that was serious. So I could sell stories about bike riding, or I could sell stories about home repair, or I could sell stories about 
clothing, or I could sell stories about food. And I wound up selling lots and lots of stories about food, but they were all about, you know, enjoyment, cooking, ingredients, travel, restaurants, and so on. And it took me roughly 20 years to sort of work my way back to radical politics, let's say, or left-wing politics, and try to integrate that in my career. And starting around 2005, I started to say it's ridiculous to just be writing about the pleasures of food. There's all these other things that are so much more important. Not that pleasure isn't important, not that cooking isn't important, it really is, but you know, land is important and how food's grown and how people who raise food are treated and all the things that I'm sure you talk about all the time, that both of us talk about all the time, be- began to become clear. And then, of course, I re-recognized that it was all interrelated. That And now we have climate change is related to agriculture, is related to public health, is related to nutrition and disease and labor and poverty and racism and on and on and on. And I started to try to write about those things and, and at the Times, and there was resistance. So I spent a few years at the Times kind of yelling at people or <laughs> arguing with people about why I, a lowly writer of the minimalist column, should be allowed to write about the intersection of climate, health, and agriculture, meat consumption. What was the reason and your understanding of why that resistance was there? Was it that our readers don't really care or this is, you know, stay in your lane, you're the minimalist or what was your take on that? My take was both of those, stay in your lane. My take is food should be about enjoyment, not about serious things. The Times no longer had an agriculture writer, which it had had for years and years at that point. It no longer had a labor writer, which it had had for years and years. So there were both of those things throw in a little ignorance as well. Like it was just not recognizing that food was a serious topic Um, or there was no place for it until I found a place for it. And the place I found for it was the opinion pages. And within a couple of years of that, I had, lo and behold, I had an opinion column writing about food and that was taken seriously, had a great following um, without being immodest, I would say it helped change the conversation about food among many people in this country. Um, But it wasn't enough for me. Now I'm getting to answer your question. I had this idea that writing the column was going to be kind of like a mosaic, that I would take all these pieces of the food system and put them together to create one big, beautiful picture. But it didn't work that way. Basically, the way columns work is that people read the column and by the following week, they've forgotten about it. So you could actually write the same one every week, as many times columnists sort of do. And then I read Sapiens, which was, you know, the sweeping view of humanity. And I thought, this is interesting. I could do this in food. I could use food as a lens to look at humanity. Well, congratulations. It's really was a wonderful read. And I want to jump to junk, you know, so the title, love it, animal, vegetable, junk. And I think a lot of us at this point, you know, living in the year 2021, have our own ideas of what comes to our mind when we think of junk food. But what is your definition of junk for the purposes of this book and for what you're trying to teach the reader? There is a definition of junk, and it's really, you know, the work of Carlos Montero, who you, whom you know, and is in, in Brazil and has done this thing called the Nova Studies or the Nova Scale. And, and there's a five scale 
evaluation by which you can uh, determine whether something is junk or not. But really, you could go back to it was probably Pollen who said it first. If your if your grandmother doesn't recognize it as food, then it's junk. It's food that you couldn't make yourself. It's food that didn't exist a hundred years ago. It's food that's made up of stuff that isn't itself food. But there's a way in which I think I think that white white flour is really the granddaddy of all of all junk food because white bread. Um, as as created around the turn of the 20th century, this kind of soft, poofy dough conditioners and yeast enhancers and all kinds of weird ingredients that turned what had been a, a legitimate food into basically a, a vitamin-enriched sponge cake. Um, that's that's sort of the the ancestor of them all. Everything else kind of follows from that. And the fact that when the government recognized that that there were vitamin deficiencies because there was so much white flour being consumed. I mean, there was a point at which, even when I was a kid, there was a, the statistic was most people got 25% of their calories from bread. And that bread was white bread and that white bread had nothing in it. And so rather than say, gee, we've been making bread wrong uh, for so many years, let's go back to figuring out how to make it right. Rather than do that, and this is so typical of the way our government has done things, they said, let's put vitamins in there. So they fortified or enriched white bread. And Wonder Bread was able to claim that it built strong bodies 12 ways. But each of those 12 ways was a different synthetic vitamin. <laughs> That's junk food for you. And it is eminently malleable. As soon as you say fiber is good for you, then junk food manufacturers will put fiber into their junk food. As soon as you say that sugar is bad for you, they'll make a show of taking sugar out of it. Is no matter what you say, the junk food will be will be ad- adapted to to kind of fit the consumer's demands. So what we have, and this is, I think the most interesting statistic regarding junk food to come out of my research was that sixty percent of calories in the United States today are in the form of ultra processed food. There's a lot of junk food out there, a lot of calories from junk food, and none of it's doing anyone any good. Right. In fact, not only not doing any of us any good, but as you say in the book, actually, like actively promoting ill health, right? Actively harming our our body's basic functioning. The other point that I think you make so well in the book, of course, is you you have in the title the word animal, and yet so much of how we are producing animals today itself is producing a form of meat junk food. (laughs) Uh, And, you know, I I just wonder uh, what your what your take is on this, this really what I see is this really rapid shift in the public conversation around meat where there's been, thanks to folks like you, and you mentioned Eric Schlosser, you know, so many of us really raising alarm about factory farming and that we have turned uh, animal protein into another kind of ultra processed junk food. And we're seeing now the industry again saying, oh, we can solve that. We've got alternative proteins. We've got this other, you know, uh, fake meat for you. And I'm, I'm curious what your take is on that trend. I mean, if and when fake meat reduces the consumption of factory farmed meat, then that becomes a much more germane conversation. As of now, it's a novelty. It's junk food, no question. It is ultra processed food but it hasn't reduced the consumption of meat in the United States. So what good is it doing us? It's just adding another form of bad food to 
to our diets. Now, it's you know to the extent that it does reduce meat consumption, which again it hasn't yet. They're definitely lower in resource use, which is good, and um, and obviously they eliminate animal suffering, which is which is great. But I know that you and I agree that it's just the wrong way to go about looking at things. If you want to eat less meat, the answer is to eat less meat, and we should be eating less meat, and we should be eating better meat, not not worse meat and not fake meat. Right. And and I think your point is really well taken and one that I we the jury is still out on is that is actually the consumption of fake meat even reducing animal suffering in the sense that does it actually reduce the number of animals being raised in factory farm conditions? And definitely jury still out on that one. But also, I really appreciated how you talked about how we are failing as a species to feed ourselves in another way, which is the hunger piece of that equation. And you try to help readers understand those roots of hunger and that it's actually not from a lack of, of production of food. And you quote the uh, economist Amartya Sen, who wrote long time ago, uh, after analyzing the world's most devastating famines from the 1970s, that actually, if you look at those famines, you found, as you say in the book, you know, food availability had no correlation with onset of famine. And of course, you're well familiar with my mother's five decade refrain that hunger is not caused by a scarcity of food, but a scarcity of democracy. And I'm wondering, as you wrote that section of the book, and as you reflected on kind of this conversation of the roots of hunger, do you feel like that scarcity myth is just as sticky as it was when you started working on these issues, you know, 30 or more years ago? If so, why is it still so entrenched? And, and what might help us get unstuck around this myth? Well, why is it so entrenched? I mean, that's the reigning propaganda. The reigning propaganda is there's there's plenty of food in America. That's because the American food system works so well and other people haven't adopted our food system. That's why they're hungry. Um, but that's not how it works. And there are two separate food systems in the world and they work in different ways and, and they are each better at something um, and each worse at something. But but what they have in common is if that you don't have any money, you can't participate. So whether you're living in a peasant food system or you're living in an industrial food system, if you're poor, you're going to be hungry. The UN says there's enough calories on earth already to feed everybody. Not only feed everybody, but feed everybody plus 50%. It's so clear that if you have money, you can get food almost anywhere and almost instantly. So Hunger is is just about poverty. That's all it's about. And as you say, of course, it has to do with poverty, with inequality of wealth, but it also has to do with, as you get into in the book, it has to do with people's ability, even farmers' ability to actually grow food that they're going to use to feed themselves or for communities to be able to grow their own food. I met this guy in Haiti. He basically said, if you're not growing your own food, you're really in danger of starving. You're just per permanently, perennially in danger of starving. And the way that agriculture has developed around the world now, the kind of agriculture that America exports is a kind of agriculture in which people are not growing their own food. And you just alluded to this. So if you're growing food to enter the cash market and then assuming that you're going to get money that's going to enable you to buy food, and the cash market collapses or the price for the one crop that you're growing 
collapses or the one crop you're growing has a bad harvest that year, you're just out of luck. You're just out of luck as a farmer. And, you know, the argument of this guy's a Via Campesina guy, the global, the international peasant organization of farmers, um, their attitude is basically people need land sovereignty. People need the ability to control enough of their land to make sure that they can grow enough food for their, at least for them and their families. And then hopefully for their village, some for their village or their town or their city or their region. So one of the other themes of the book, when you get to the section on kind of where do we go from here and where do you see kind of bright lights about how we get out of this mess was you talk about, you know, what are some of those systems out there for aligning our food system with what's good for our bodies, what actually would nourish us, what would get to those roots of hunger. And you talk then about this power of this idea of agroecology. And so I want to spend a few minutes talking about this, but first, just what would be your couple sentence definition of the word agroecology for people who've never never heard it before? Agroecology, it's seeing agriculture as the beginning of a series of steps that bring us toward that sort of humanity as one family goal, a, a series of steps of community, of everybody being treated fairly, of food being grown to nourish people, not for profits, of land being treated um, so that it will last for many, many more thousands of years so that uh, farmers are treated with dignity, eaters are treated with dignity, and so on down the line. All of these notions of equality and fairness and justice, that's what agroecology is about. And, and those kind of topics, which are fundamentally moral, don't get discussed enough, um, especially around food, but around many issues. Right. But it is also really common sense. But also, as you get into in the book, those kinds of systems that you just described that are part of this philosophy embedded within agroecology are at absolute odds with kind of modern capitalism, which does not account for a natural system, you know, has what economists like to talk about as externalities. And so they push, you know, all of these impacts outside of that economic system and are not accounted for, are not tracked, are not addressed. I mean, having said that, you and I have both seen, and this is, we don't want to go too deep into this, but you and I have both seen uh, articles about agroecology being co-opted. And, and um, you know, it goes back to the sort of organic junk food is still junk food thing. You can follow a lot of the principles of agroecology and still make food that that you don't want other people to eat, still treat labor in ways that it shouldn't be treated, people shouldn't be treated and so on. So, I mean, no shortcut word is going to, is going to explain everything that I think people like you and I stand for or want to stand for. There's a number of reasons why kind of the term isn't mainstreamed. And yet I do think that the depth in which you go into it in the book helps people understand that it isn't just kind of this limit. It's not just about a set of practices on the farm. It also has to do with politics, with movement building, with research and science. And one of the places that you talk about in the book where you see the reader can kind of get a little sense of what does it look like when you start seeing agroecology actually embodied in, in, in a place is Andhra Pradesh. And I wonder if you just want to uh, talk about what you, what that visit was like for you, um, why you went there and, uh, you know, why you chose to include it in the book. I got really excited 
about Andhra Pradesh when I was I spent it was like like November and December 2017. I spent on the phone with many people you know in the global food movement, and many of whom I hadn't heard of before that. But everybody kept saying, "You got to go to Andhra Pradesh. You got to go to Andhra Pradesh." And I and I did. And I'm really glad that I did. And and what's happening in Andhra Pradesh is a government-sponsored training program in which farmers and villages in Andhra Pradesh is 60 million people. So it's, a, it's bigger than California population-wise. Right. And we're talking about a, a state in southern India here. Right. A state in yeah. India that's as big as Italy. <laughs> but the farms are... are Although there is now industrial agriculture there, the, the village farms are small. People own a half an acre. They own an acre. Uh, there are a thousand people in a village, more or less. And it's easy to have an impact. And what happened was some, some really agricultural evangelists started going village to village and saying, we can teach you how to grow without chemicals. We can teach you how to grow more crops. We can teach you how to spend less money and grow more food without harming the soil. And this was basically a form of organic agriculture. They call it zero-budget natural farming, ZBNF. It was working, and it was actually modeled on uh, women's consciousness raising groups. There were, there were community discussions about, first, about how, how women could stand up for themselves and how women could could work together to fight sexism and to be stronger. And then similar conversations happened among farmers, how farmers could help each other to farm better. And the government became involved and the government became involved to the tune of tens and later hundreds of millions of dollars of investment in sending farmers who had learned the system of zero budget natural farming, sending farmers from one village to the next. It's it's local democracy. I mean, what you're describing, right, is people getting engaged in their own communities and their own economic systems and, and farming practices, right? Right. And so the way people explained it to me, and it's so successful that people are moving back to villages from from the big cities where they were working for Amazon or Google or whatever and going to work with their parents on their farms. Um, I mean, I saw that. I spoke to those people. But the way it's working is that Three or four people from your village, who's a, which has adopted this way of farming, are sent to another village and they hold a meeting and they say, we can teach you how to farm without expensive chemicals and you'll grow more crops and your yields will grow up. And the first year that those people go there, maybe three or four people will say, yes, I'll try that. And then the second year, maybe 60 or 100 people do it because they see the success of the first three or four people. And then by the third year, everybody's doing it. And this is the the plan of the Andhra government. So a year ago said that it was still going great. And they thought that by 2030, every small farmer in the state would be farming this way. They were fully confident that that, and that's, that's something like 6 million farms. It's a lot of farmers. So that's the sort of, in my experience, that's the kind of highest impact form of government sponsored local democracy spurred farming in the world today. And um, it works. It's, it's working on every level. It's also working on a level of increasing democracy in, in those villages and in that state. I feel like writing a book is, from my experience, a really transformative process where uh, I find 
I learn and, and, and I learn so much from it, but also reflect on my own way of thinking. And I just wonder, was there anything that changed you in the process of writing this book? I'm just curious if, if it, how it changed you as a thinker or eater or chef. I don't think it changed me as an eater. I came to believe more strongly than ever in the things that I was writing. I I loved the we haven't talked about the history much, but I loved that part. And um and what was funny was that I mostly wrote this book in the year before uh COVID. So it mostly got written finalized in 2019. And the funny thing is that as I was finishing it, I thought, I wonder if I'm hammering too hard on the race issues in here because agriculture was responsible for colonialism and neo-colonialism too, but agriculture was responsible for imperialism and genocide and slavery. And and most of that was was executed by white Europeans on other people of the world, indigenous people mostly of the rest of the world. And I thought, you know, this is some heavy shit here. And I I don't know how it's going to fly. And the funny thing is that when I finished the book, I thought, did I write enough about racism? And that's how much, not only my attitude, but the general attitude, I think, in the United States changed in that 2019, 2020 period. And that's a good thing. You know, that I, I think I caught the moment kind of right and I felt good about it, but I, I'm glad that I concentrated on race as much as I did. and. Um, and I think it's a you know it's always an important thing to talk about, no matter what subject, what serious subject you're talking about. I think the subject of white supremacy of especially white male supremacy and race is an important thing to touch on so I think that that was a that was powerful for me yeah yeah no i I thought that that was uh as a reader, I feel like that was such a strength of the book that you know essentially if you are honest about telling the story of the history of food, as you're saying, you cannot tell that story of the history of food without talking about uh, the systemic racism that is at the heart of how labor has been exploited and how peoples have been exploited, how food has been used as a weapon by those in power, all those things that are a theme of this book. It's like, you had to, that's the story, (laughs) that a central, if not the central story. So as a reader, I appreciated that so much. uh, And I also felt like it's, that's, the honest telling of the story of food. Yeah. I mean, and it hadn't been told in that way, at least not much before. Yeah. I mean, I certainly, there are those who have written about those inextricable linkages, but I think in a book that felt like, you know, for the audience that follows, you know, that might pick up this book because they've bought one of your cookbooks. (laughs) Uh, You know, I feel like uh, that was my hope is it's reaching people who otherwise wouldn't pick up uh, a heady nonfiction book about the history of food. I want to talk for our last question about the future. Uh, I don't know if you would agree with this, but I feel like and every time I look at my Twitter stream, at least there's, you know, some new conference being announced about the future of food. You know, LinkedIn is filled with like a futurist consultants and this whole world of experts that are telling us what the future holds. And certainly, you know, companies saying that they're they're on the front lines of what the future of food is. And you write in the book, the future isn't set. 
there is a time to change how we grow and what we eat. The stakes are high. And I wonder if you want to just share a few thoughts on what you see as Mark Bittman's future of food, where you see all this heading, uh, or what are some of the pathways you see for this future that we're moving toward? I don't want to think about what food looks like 10 or maybe 10, but not 20 or 50 years from now. I want to think about what it looks like one and five years from now, maybe 10 years from now, because there are things we can affect right now that will change the future of food that are not, they're significant. They're really significant. They don't sound that big. I think it's important to talk about there's antibiotics in the food supply. We got to get rid of those. There are, there are pesticides, all pesticides. And, you know, once you're talking about chemicals, you can talk about the, the sort of fact that there are like 70,000 chemicals in our environment right now. And many of them make people sick. But even if you just focused on pesticides, what are the laws around pesticides? How do we keep it so that it's not possible for anyone to walk into any store and buy carcinogenic chemicals and start spreading them around? What are we teaching our children about food and how are we protecting them from those chemicals and from the junk food we were talking about before? What is the ethanol mandate and what does that actually mean about agriculture in this country? What does it mean that the land in the United States was stolen from indigenous people and then given to white men by other white men? <laughs> right. And, and getting to all those questions, as you said, yeah, in, in getting raising those questions and starting to address them and deal with them is the way that we're going to shape the future is, is what I'm hearing you say. Right. It's not invent some meat substitute that's going to make new billionaires and de maybe decrease the wealth of old billionaires, which it, it won't even do that. And it won't increase public health. It probably won't protect animals. It's certainly not going to change agriculture and so on down the line. I appreciated you talking about how none of these futures are preordained uh, and that choices that we make today are what are going to shape whatever the future of food looks like. Right. Great. So, Mark, any last final words of wisdom for us before we sign off here? I mean, the the one sentence thing is that food is important and people should pay attention to it. It's not just something you eat. The way it's grown and the, and what we eat determines so much about the world that it's worth taking much more seriously than we do. And I know we focused on your new book, Animal Vegetable Junk, in this conversation, but uh, I also want to give a shout out to all the ways in which you teach people how to cook. <laughs> and you and your team have been producing recipes that I know certainly my family and I have been uh, turning to many times during this pandemic. Uh, and I think that's, you know, really critical part of your work. It's yes, these are these big political fights we have to have, but also what we put on our table for dinner is, is not disconnected from that. No, not at all. Food really matters. Exactly. Well, thank you, Mark. Thank you for joining us and thank you for all of your great work. Thanks for having me. And um, yeah, it, was, it was good to chat. Thanks for listening to Real Food Reads. Join our book club and find out about future book selections, author interviews, and other resources at realfoodmedia.org. To listen to Real Food Reads and our sister podcast, Foodtopias, look for Real Food Media wherever you get your podcasts. You can support our work by leaving us a rating or review wherever you listen. Thanks so much. Until next time.